you need to understand the problem before we start addressing it and seeing examples of how people have subtracted because I mean, we've got some really cool examples and I think they'll spark your ideas. But the bottom line is I have no idea how you should subtract in your life. I just want you to consider it as an option and then you can figure out subtractions that I never would have thought of. Maybe they, they work for you or maybe they're like a subtraction that helps all of society. But, you know, I'm not capable of thinking of them. You have to bring your unique expertise to it. Welcome to another episode of Success Through Failure. This is your host, Jim Harshaw Jr. And today I bring you Lighty Klotz. Ever since I finished my career as a Division I All-American athlete, I longed for not only the clarity of purpose that I had as an athlete, but also the accountability that comes with aspiring for big goals with a team of like-minded people. Then I discovered mastermind groups. Masterminds are small groups of like-minded people who get together either in person or over Skype or just over the phone to provide support, feedback, and advice to other members of the group. So I dove in and I learned all I could about mastermind groups and then I finally launched my own. And the change was instant. I regained the accountability of being part of a group of like-minded, hardworking individuals who hold me to a higher standard. My mastermind group helps me get feedback and advice and even validation when I'm making big, big decisions in my life. And I have clarity and focus and accountability again, just like when I was an athlete. I've now facilitated dozens of high performers in mastermind groups. I'm talking Olympians and MBAs and neurosurgeons and professional athletes and, and entrepreneurs and lots of others. I've taken everything you need to know to start your own mastermind group and I put it into a short 10-page ebook titled The Quick and Easy Guide to Starting Your Own Mastermind Group in 30 Days or Less. Grab a copy of this free ebook by going to jimharshawjr.com slash mastermind. That's jimharshawjr.com slash mastermind. What if through a simple shift in your thinking, you could shrink your to-do list, shorten your work hours, and actually be happier? University of Virginia professor Lighty Klotz reveals how to do exactly this in his groundbreaking new book titled Subtract, The Untapped Science of Less. Now, if you've ever cleaned out your closet or taken some old t-shirts out of your t-shirt drawer and donated them to the Goodwill, like you know how good that feels, right? Simplifying, taking away, minimizing. Um, if you actually found some enjoyment during uh, COVID when you're life got simpler in some ways because you know you weren't traveling as much and maybe your kids weren't in as many activities and whatnot i know our life certainly we, we subtracted a lot from our life and we found pleasure in some of those things right Among, amongst all the the negativity and the and the terrible things happening like there was actually this this benefit of a simpler schedule right subtracting in the power of subtraction can really change your life and there's a a great quote by da vinci he says Perfection is not when there's nothing left to add, but rather when there's nothing left to take away. It's a hard thing to do, though. It's hard to bring your mind to actually find ways to subtract. We're just used to adding. And we actually talk about this, about the biological and evolutionary influences, about the cultural influences, about the economic influences that push us away from looking at this as an option. Now, he's not saying this is the only option for improving things. He's saying we just overlook this option all of the time. It's just the way that we're, we're wired and we're really missing out on an opportunity to find more solutions. And there's 
research that he's done himself, but he also covers in the book, quite a bit of research that other people have done around the world and really, you know, specific examples of this that you've seen in your own life about how taking away has made your life better and how has, has made the world better. And he gives some really cool stories and interesting examples, but really uh, we bring it down into tactical things that you can do in your own life. And I recommend as a follow-up episode, right after listening to this, go directly to episode 291. 291. And that's about logically overriding the default, because that's what this is about. You have a default to add, and we want to override that default and say, hey, maybe there's an opportunity to subtract. Anyway, we get into the details of this. You're going to really love this interview with Lighty Klotz. Here we go. I want to start with a big question. Why is studying subtraction worthwhile? That's a great, <laughs> great question. Because it's less about the act of subtraction that's worthwhile, but the situation that we're studying here is anytime we're trying to take something from how it is to how we want it to be, right? This is the situation in which we found that people underuse subtraction. And that's really important to study. Like, how do we do that? What's our human nature as we approach that kind of situation? And, and whether it's physical thing that you're trying to change from how it is to how you want it to be, whether it's your calendar, whether it's the ideas that are in your head, this is something that we do all day, every day. And so studying that and how we approach that is important. And then finding that when we go through that process, we're systematically biased to think of adding and therefore overlook subtraction, that's a big deal because we do it a lot and it affects our lives, it affects our productivity, it affects our happiness, and it affects you know our world. I just got back from a month-long, five-week-long, essentially a vacation, kind of a working vacation, but this interview is really timely because I came home from vacation and I walked into my house and I put my bag down and I looked around at all of the stuff in my world, in my house. And I thought, man, why do I need all this stuff? I have two bags, one with my clothes and, and necessities and the other one with my entire business, which had you know, a microphone, a computer, a camera, and, and not a whole lot of other things. So I'm like, why do I need all of this other stuff? So this is very timely for me to, to have this conversation with you and, and I think for the listeners as well. So you mentioned we are systematically biased for addition, for adding stuff. Why is that? Well, the part that we know is that when we're thinking about things, right, we do this in a sequential process. So you can't think of everything all at the same time. So when we get back to this basic situation that we're talking about, it's like, how do I make something better? You do searches kind of in sequence, mental searches. And so you might ask yourself, okay, what could I add to this situation to make it better. So if you're, you know, back to your vacation example, you come back into your house and you're looking around your house and you're like, oh man, I really wish I had the fancy cutting board that we had at our vacation rental. So maybe I'm going to add that to the situation. And it's not that you can't then also do like a search for subtraction, a mental search for subtraction. It's just that if you do the search for adding and then you're you're happy, you choose adding, you might overlook subtraction. So basically what's happening is our brain is wired to think of adding first, and then we're happy with the addition, or we think we're happy with the addition, and we move on and therefore overlook subtraction. So that's what we know for sure 
that that's going on. And anytime there's something happening like that, any bias that we have in our decision-making processes, there's multiple reasons. I mean, there's likely evolutionary reasons and cultural reasons and economic reasons. I'm happy to go into those if you think they'd be interesting. Well, yeah, you talk in the book, you mentioned you know, evolutionary, like biological reasons, cultural reasons, economic reasons. And I'll be honest, when I picked up the book, I thought to myself, it was very simple. I'm like, we're just wired for more because our ancestors wanted more food, more berries, more tools, more clubs, whatever. They wanted more. But there were also cases of less you found in there too, because right at some point they were on sort of like a an extended forever camping trip and they had to, to also think about minimizing stuff in subtraction just by by not adding as well. But yeah, let's start with biologically. Why are we wired for more? Right. And the, the acquisitiveness that you mentioned, right, when you don't have something, especially food or ways to get food with the clubs and, and things like that, if you don't have that, then acquiring it is going to help you pass down your genes, right? So then it becomes this evolutionary helpful behavior to get things. The more surprising evolutionary one for me and the one that I think is also helpful in, in modern times is this desire to display competence. And I knew that, you know, we had this desire to display competence. I feel that every day. I want to show my boss I'm doing a good job. I want to show my wife I'm doing a good job. But I was surprised at just how evolutionary that is. And so the classic example and the one that I use in the book is bowerbirds. These are the, the male birds build a ceremonial nest. And then the female birds go around and look at the nest and decide who to mate with based on those nests. And you're like, okay, big deal. You know, that's shelter that helped the birds pass down their genes. But then after they mate, the females go build a nest to raise the kids, to provide the shelter. So the whole point of the ceremonial nests that the male bowerbirds are building is to show, hey, this male is effective at interacting with the world. And, you know, this isn't just a male female thing. I mean, we all share this instinct to want to show that we can effectively make change and show that we're capable of dealing with the world around us. And more recently, this desire to display competence, but it's also extends to our desire to complete tasks, right? So we show competence by, hey, look at all this crap I checked off my to-do list. Forget about whether it's useful or not, but I did it and I'm displaying my competence. And so that's something to be aware of as we're trying to subtract in our own lives that, you know, yeah, we're wired to acquire, you know, we want to eat more food, but also we have this innate need to show competence and recognizing that we can kind of work around it and figure out ways to show competence by subtracting. So those are two of the biological forces. I, I'd also point out though, that you mentioned the counter forces, right? So like biology, yeah, it has us adding, but when you look at how evolution works just in general at the broadest level, it works through adaptations and then selections, right? So the adaptations you could think of as, as additive, it's like some new thing happens, but then the selections are the calling out of the things that aren't helpful. So evolution, you know, there are some forces that kind of pull us towards adding but also as a as a metaphor, it's a good reminder that like adding and subtracting are complementary ways to make things better. Yeah. And I think the competence concept that you mentioned, I mean, we see that all around us as well. Like everybody wants to have the new car, the bigger house. There's like this status thing that we feel makes us look competent. And that is 
making us add more and more and more and, and more stuff doesn't make us happier. I mean, I know my, my wife a few years ago for Lent, she did um, 40 bags in 40 days. Her goal was to get rid of a bag of stuff per day for 40 days. And it felt so good. Like, and she didn't actually achieve it, but like she'd got rid of like 20 some bags of stuff and I was pitching in and it was, and it feels good to offload stuff. So more stuff, even if it makes us feel more competent, doesn't make us happier. Actually subtracting oftentimes makes us happy. We don't even consider that though. Yeah, that's a beautiful example because I mentioned how like knowing about this idea of competence, you can kind of flip it to work for you when you're subtracting. I imagine you felt pretty competent or your wife felt pretty competent when she was subtracting that stuff, right? Because the bags are visible. You're taking this bag outside and it's like, okay, I did this thing. Whereas, you know, I'm looking at my kid's bedroom right now and that doubles as my office. And if I pick up one of these stuffed animals, nobody's going to notice, right? But if you take a whole bag outside and there's visible evidence of your competence displayed through subtraction, that's a way you can still display competence and have it working for subtraction. So I, yeah, that's a, that's a really cool example. The one other point is, you know, the, those are physical examples you provided. I also think when you think about how we talk about how busy we are, that's an example of how this competence has gotten conflated to just adding, right? So you'll go, he'll people say, oh, I, I'm so busy. I'm, I'm just, you know, wall to wall with, with work and driving the kids around. And it's like, how has that become like model of success? And I think what we're doing there is displaying our competence, right? You're showing you're really busy, but there's other cultures where for example, like, hey, the competent person is the one who can go on vacation for five weeks and still be effective in making change and positively influencing the world. So yeah, it's a really a couple of really good points there. Yeah. And so we start with biological or evolutionary. What are some of the cultural reasons why we're maybe not as prone to subtracting? Right. And so the cultural stuff is like, okay, once civilization happened, right? So if you think about like deep history, the world did not look like it looks now. It was only at most like 10,000 years ago where we started having civilizations, where you started having like permanent settlements, where you started having social structures, where you started having like a daily schedule with more things to do than just hunt and gather. And so like all these modern things that we might add and subtract it's a relatively new phenomenon. And so like the cultural forces, you look at, okay, what's happening in those 10,000 years since the cultures came around and culture evolves like biological evolution, but culture can evolve much faster, right? Because biology is relying on these adaptations and selections, whereas culture, it's like somebody writes a book and an idea can be spread around as fast as people can read it or, you know, now do a podcast and it spreads even faster, right? Culture evolves in this way too. But as I was looking into the history of like, okay, what was there at the beginning of civilizations? Like, you know, the things like, okay, cities, writing, organized religion. One thing that was there that all these anthropologists agreed upon that uh, was monumental architecture. I'm an engineer by training, even though this research is very behavioral, it's about more about the how we engineer as opposed to like the physical products themselves. But I'm an engineer by training. I always am interested when I go to Rome, I'm like, oh, let's see the Colosseum. When I go to Mexico, I want to see the ruins of the Mayans. 
but I was still surprised like, oh, are you serious? Monumental architecture is this thing that had to be there for a civilization to be required a civilization. And so it was hard for me to to believe, but I just kept seeing it come up by all these leading anthropologists and historians. And then it started to make sense. And so the monumental architecture, that's defined as something that is like basically impractical. It's so big that it's impractical, right? So there's no shelter function of the architecture. So it's like pyramids, temples, monuments, things like that. This monumental architecture was there at the beginning of all these civilizations. And so the theory is that it brought people together in two ways. One, in the awe that it inspired, right? So people come together. It's like, holy cow, you're this new person coming into this settlement and you see this massive structure and that's awe inspiring. And you're like, oh, this is a cool community that I want to be part of. The other way is very like practical way is like to build a big structure. You have to have a lot of people come together and stay in the place for a long time. And so now the theory is even going further in that monumental architecture was the stimulus for like the beginnings of civilizations. There's this temple in Turkey that they found these huge structures as big as giraffes, rocks as big as giraffes. So no way a single tribe of hunter-gatherers could have moved these rocks around. They had to have worked together somehow to do it. But there's no signs of agriculture there. And so they think that the, the tribes actually came together to build this monumental architecture and then thought, okay, well, if we've got to stay here in the same place for a while to build this thing, and to to worship at it, then we're going to need to do agriculture. <laughs> so wherever you place it in the genesis of civilization, there's no question that monumental architecture was there. And this is a very additive thing, right? It's very similar to the bowerbirds nests. So that's one specific thing of that we all share a cultural heritage of that. But also just when you think about cultures and how civilizations have spread, all of us pretty much have descended from a, a civilization that expanded, right? When the Romans expanded and overtook hunter-gatherer tribes, then the resulting civilization took on that expansive culture. So for the most part, we all kind of share this heritage of expansion, building monumental stuff. And to the extent that that's, you know, wired us into us now, it could help explain why we default to adding on the cultural standpoint just for a long time it's been really good to add right and i think if you look at the deep history when you're roaming around in hunter gatherer tribes there's not many subtractive options the options are like okay let do we want to build a city do we want to grow our civilization and a lot of these opportunities to subtract are relatively new. I mean, I talk in the book about the code of federal regulations being 17 times as long as it was in 1950. And that, you know, now there's more opportunities to subtract regulations that aren't serving us well. That's not a problem that was faced when the people were creating the first civilization. And so I think that it doesn't necessarily mean people were silly back then. It was like they were doing things that were very effective for their time. And now we're here with this bias that might not be serving us as well in our time. Yeah, absolutely. And, and let's go to the third one. So economic reasons. And by the way, for the listener, uh, we're going to give you some very specific examples here of when subtraction has 
worked in society and things that you have seen before and experienced before and done before where it was a result of subtraction. So we will get to some really specific examples so you can understand how this actually plays out in the real world and how it can play out in your life. But first, I want to talk about the economic reasons. And and I'll say one thing to kick this part of the conversation off, lady, is like, you know, I grew up in a blue collar family and, you know, middle class, lower middle class. And, you know, my parents were raised by, you know, depression era generation. And so, you know, stuff like getting stuff, getting free stuff, accruing stuff, gathering stuff, having stuff, like it doesn't matter if it was good stuff or, or bad stuff. Like if you had stuff and we could get stuff, we got the stuff. And I feel like this is kind of the, the economic drive for having stuff, right? I mean, at least there was a, a mindset in my family, but I want to hear more about the economic reasons why we're not necessarily wired for subtraction. Yeah, that's a, a great example. And it's funny because that can go both ways. I think my grandma was the depression era one and she she just passed away at, at 100. You know, they were very well off for their time. She went to college, which was like unheard of for a woman in that era. But she still like lived through World War Two and like this time of scarcity. And I think it made her appreciative of stuff when she had it the way that got passed down through our family was like you don't need that much stuff to be happy and i, I think that's a maybe a different reaction to it but yeah fascinating to to hear how it comes down from those generations and really a the point that i think is key when we talk about economic forces for subtraction because it was really after World War II, we think about it now. It's like, okay, more is good. More is good. We see all these advertisements to buy more stuff. But before World War II, this really wasn't a guiding force for our economy. And economic output was not this, okay, this is the only measure that matters as we're thinking about how we create a successful society. In fact, if you look at all the religious texts, there's warnings against more. And one of the reasons we were in the depression in the first place, right, is because we responded to this economic downturn by like cutting supply or, or cutting funding or saving more, which, you know, seems logical on the face of it, but turned out to be exactly the wrong approach. And so what World War II made obvious was that, you know, the world was still a very separate place. The countries were not all together working towards the same basic goals. And so after World War II, it's like, how do we get more countries on the same page so that we, you know, reduce the chance of another world war, which, you know, World War II happened 30 years after World War I. So there's all these people who are basically experienced two world wars, which is just tragic and devastating to think about. So what happened after World War II is the United States said, we're going to pursue economic growth and the organizations that have been set up to bring countries together, whether the United Nations, the IMF, the World Bank said, okay, to be part of these organizations, you're also going to report how you're developing economically. And this is very well-intentioned. This was, you know, how are you lifting the bottom line in your country to provide better opportunities for your people? And so they would report gross domestic product, but this is a very additive measure. Um, and so gross domestic products, like anything that happens in your country, including military spending, including building prisons, including buying stuff that your wife then 
you know, throws out during Lent, all of that stuff counts as gross domestic product. So it's a really blunt adding measure that has incentivized more. And so, you know, one of the points I make is, yeah, we're facing this thing, but it hasn't always been this way. And it's not the intent of economics to overlook things that provide value through less. It's just, you know, kind of a situation that we're in that we need to be aware of. Those are the economic forces. And combined, you've got these biological, cultural, and economic forces that do contribute, you know, who knows how much each one contributes to us having this systematic bias to think adding before we think of subtracting. And then what happens is this reinforces itself, right? So we live in this world, you know, Jim, you and I walk around in this world and your listeners walk around with all these examples of adding, right? Because we've got this history of having this mindset where adding is the first thing we think of. And so you see the physical houses, you see the, the busy people, you see the knowledge accumulating on Google, and you get all these reminders of ways that people have added to make the world better and fewer reminders of ways that people have subtracted to make the world better. And that reinforces itself. So he's like, okay, on top of all these forces, now you've got these reminders that are making you, you know, adding one more force on top of all of it. So that's kind of the how all these things work together to lead to this phenomenon. And this is why we organize the book this way. It's like listeners are smart, readers are smart. You need to understand the problem before we start addressing it and seeing examples of how people have subtracted. Because I mean, we've got some really cool examples and I think they'll spark your ideas. But the bottom line is I have no idea how you should subtract in your life. I just want you to consider it as an option. And then you can figure out subtractions that I never would have thought of. Maybe they, they work for you, or maybe they're like a subtraction that helps all of society. But, you know, I'm not capable of thinking of them. You have to bring your unique expertise to it. And by understanding the science of why we don't do it, that's kind of the first step in doing it more and using this option more. Yeah. And, and I do want to get tactical with this. I don't want to give the listeners some sort of actionable things that they can do before we wrap up here today, because I think, you know, taking these concepts and really putting them into our lives, that's the real trick here. But, you know, as I alluded to earlier, there's all kinds of examples around us where subtraction has worked, right? Can you share some of those examples, whether it's, you know, things that we do, whether it's products or real world things that have happened where subtraction has been a great solution where adding could have either didn't work or, or could cause more problems? One of my favorite ones is balance bikes. So if you've got a little kid, you know about these. These are the the miniature bikes for two-year-olds, and they're a really small version of a bike. But the innovation is that they don't have pedals on them. And what happens is as soon as they can walk, they can walk on top of this bike. And then after about an hour of doing that, they're pushing it along like a Flintstones car. And then it's another hour or so, and they can literally balance on top of this bike and move at speeds as, as fast as I can sprint anyway. And it's just amazing innovation that allows kids to ride bikes for two additional years that I didn't get to do. And then after they're done with the balance bikes and they're ready for the pedal bike, they don't even need training wheels because they already know how to balance. They just need to learn how to pedal at the same time as balancing. And so, you know, it's just 
unquestionably an improvement has made the world a better place. And if, what I like about it is an example of subtraction is, you know, the innovation here is you took away the pedals and Ryan McFarland, who started the Strider bike companies, he'd be a good interview for your podcast, actually, Jim, he's a fascinating person with a really interesting backstory, but he recounts the design process. And I describe it in my book. And he's like thinking about how to lightweight the bike is how he came to this. And so he's like, okay, can I get rid of this? Can I get rid of that? And then he's like, well, what if I just get rid of the whole drivetrain, right? So the pedals, the gears, he's like, oh, and that was the insight. And so it's an example that he thought of not just incremental subtraction, but a lot of subtraction. And then the other thing I really like about it is that this was just overlooked for so long, right? People were making money off of kids' bikes for the last 100 years. And, you know, you get training wheels, fatter tires, little cabooses that stick on the grown-ups' bike, all these innovations, and nobody thought to take away the pedals to make this thing that has revolutionized bike riding. So I love that example as an example of, like, subtracting in innovation. And let me add to that, too, because, you know, when you think about a bicycle, there are really two main parts to a bicycle. Like there's the wheels and there's the drivetrain. And for somebody to actually think of like, what if I actually took away one of the main parts of a bicycle? How could that make it better? And that's where the innovation happened. So I challenged the listener, like, ask yourself, what if I got rid of blank? What if I stopped doing blank? And I'd fill in the blank. And yeah, a, a lot of the answers you come up with might not be relevant or might not work. What if I got rid of the wheels on the bike? Well, that's that's that one's not going to work. What if I get rid of the drivetrain? Ah, that one actually might work. But I, I challenge you to think of that in your life because, you know, with a bicycle, what, what do we do? Well, okay, I, my kid's young, can't ride the bike. I'm going to add training wheels. Well, no, take off the training wheels and take off the drivetrain. Take off two things, subtract two things, and you actually have something that is like infinitely better then what you started with. And I think that is just a fascinating example, right? And I, I think that's a great strategy. It's just like, just consider it. You don't have to do it. <laughs> just think about it. And uh, that's a really good one. And, and also, like, if, if you find yourself thinking about, okay, I'm thinking about adding something, then if that triggers, oh, I'm also going to think about subtracting, that would be a really good way to overcome this bias. <laughs> Quick interruption. Hey, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to get the notes, quotes, and links in the action plan from this episode. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. That's jimharshawjr.com slash action to get your free copy of the action plan. Now back to the show. So what's another example that you've seen that has been really, you know, easy to understand kind of a, a thing that was staring us in the face as a solution that we hadn't figured out until somebody thought about subtracting. I'll give a personal one. You know, some people are probably already doing this, but I care a lot about productivity and success. And it wasn't until like about five years ago that I started having a stop doing list. And so whereas the balance bike, obviously that's a physical thing. The stop doing list addresses this kind of busy trap that we've put ourselves into. And all the stop doing list is when you sit down, whatever your routine is to, you know, do your to do's, whether you do that daily, whether you do that weekly, whether you do that monthly, force yourself to also consider what you're going to stop doing. And the key here is that it's not just what you're going to say no to. Okay. So saying no is important to keeping your 
schedule clear. But if somebody comes to you with this new fantastic proposition and you say, you know, no, it just, it doesn't fit in because I've got all these other things that I'm focused on. That's great. You didn't add something, but you didn't actually take something away. Right. (laughs) And the stop doing is like, Hey, you're sitting here adding to do's to a calendar that is already probably overstressed if you're like me. And how do you think you're going to do those if you don't take some things away? And so the stop doing is what am I already doing, right? What is this a meeting that I'm already attending weekly that I, you know, it's marginally beneficial, but it's not as beneficial as the other stuff that I'm doing. So therefore I'm going to stop doing it. Maybe there's, you know, a project like that. Maybe there's something, something you're doing with your kids. I mean, it's, those are the hard ones, right? Because you think, oh, I don't want to take any time away from my kids, but it's like, I'm thinking about my six-year-old. And as we're, you know, trying to spend more time with him reading, do I need to stop taking him fishing as much to spend more of the reading time. I mean, time is a finite resource and it's our most precious resource and the stop doing, again, I'm just asking you to consider it, not to pull any of these off, but it's been really helpful to have that as a practice for myself and thinking about how I'm organizing my time. It's a great example, a real world, real life example, actionable, tactical thing. Another example you shared in the book was the Embarcadero Bridge. Can you tell a little bit about that story? Yeah, I tell the story in the book from the perspective of Sue Bierman, who's a community organizer, because, you know, so the Embarcadero, if you've been to San Francisco, you've probably been to the Embarcadero. It's the waterfront and you go see the harbor seals. There's people making balloon animals and people commuting on bikes. It's just this terrific mixed use space that I think is one of the most visited places in the world. And what you don't see when you go is that it used to be covered by a double-decker highway, a double-decker concrete highway. And you're like, okay, well, how many of us can actually subtract a highway from a city, right? That doesn't the mayor decide that or whoever, but we can. So Sue Bierman was this neighborhood activist who, you know, she really cared about making San Francisco better. She didn't have any training in, you know, city planning. She learned a ton about it through years of persistent activism. And she was part of the group that started studying, hey, what would our city be like if we got rid of this double-decker freeway? And so they studied it a lot and they showed, you know, based on the numbers, it's like, yeah, we'd probably lose some capacity for traffic, but look at what we'd gain with this waterfront. And you know, made the rational case to people that's like, okay, this is the right thing to do for our city. And, you know, now when we see the space, it's so obvious that it was right to remove it, but nobody wanted to do it. So they put it to a vote in the city and it was two to one, basically more people wanted to keep it than wanted to get rid of it. And the planning commission was just like, okay, forget it. We're not going to bother with this anymore because it's so clear what the people want. Then the World Series earthquake happened. So this is 1989, and the two teams from the Bay were playing in the World Series, Giants in Oakland, and the, this is a, the televised earthquake that you know canceled this game of the World Series. So the, the earthquake did a damage, killed 63 people. It was the most costly earthquake in the United States at the time. Most of the deaths actually happened on a freeway in Oakland that was a double-decker concrete freeway that looked a lot like the Embarcadero. So you've got this evidence of like, okay, it's dangerous to have a freeway in an earthquake zone. It also damaged the Embarcadero freeway itself. So now the proposition for the city wasn't, do we want to keep this thing or get rid of this thing? It was, do we want to rebuild this thing or get rid of this thing? And so the city finally kind of forced it through, really. I mean, they didn't put it to a vote 
among the citizens, because I think the citizens probably still would have voted against it, maybe not by as wide a margin. But the Planning Commission put it through just by one vote. It passed in the Planning Commission. And then, you know, they they took down the freeway after they did that. The mayor got voted out of office. The planning commission all lost their jobs in large part because they like took down this freeway. It was so obviously an improvement. So this is an example of number one, subtraction can be really powerful. It's created this beautiful space in the city of San Francisco. So super powerful way to improve a city, especially now that our cities are built up. But also beyond this problem of thinking about taking away, we also have a problem of kind of following through with it, right? So there's reasons why it's harder to subtract. Like it's hard to break from the status quo, number one, and we feel more emotional pain when we lose something than we do when we gain something of the same value. So when we're thinking about losing this freeway, we got emotional attachments to it and it can be hard to get rid of it. So, so the freeway eventually came down, it created this really beautiful space in San Francisco. And if you look at the infrastructure plan, that's, I forget where it is in Congress right now, but it's going through and there's way more attention being paid to, okay, what are the, the highways that we can remove from inner cities that will actually make the cities better? And again, just consider it. It's, I'm not saying we should subtract every highway. I'm just saying this should be an option that's on the table as we've built up these things in our city. So that's a really big visible example of how subtracting can improve a city. And also a, a really nice example of how, of course, Sue Bierman was the activist that I write around. Of course, she was working with large groups of people, but you know, she made a, a measurable impact on one of the most important cities in the world through her actions. So it, it, you don't have to be a professional to make big change in the physical world. Yeah. And for the listener, I want you to think about you know, what does that look like in your community? Maybe it's in your neighborhood, maybe it's in your city, maybe it's in your kids' sports organization, whatever it is, right? What is that that physical thing that that everybody says, no, we can't get rid of that? You know, that's you know, the freeway. We need we have to have the freeway. If we don't, then the traffic everywhere else. And how are people gonna get around? Like, what is that thing that you just assume and that everybody assumes that you have to have that maybe that assumption isn't based on fact and statistics and research and truth. And also think about like, what is that Embarcadero bridge that's in your life? Like, what is that thing that you're like, no, I just have to have this thing, right? Whatever, maybe it's a physical thing. Maybe it's something else, right? Maybe it's a, a, something else that you do, or you feel like you have to have, or something you do in your business or something you do in your life that you're like, no, I just have to have this. Cause if I don't, then what if, right? Well, as my wife says, she says, you know, don't ask the question, uh, what if, like, what if is an open-ended question, you know, what if we don't have the Embarcadero Freeway? Oh my gosh, I don't know, like, what if that's like this open-ended question, like, then you can say, if, just drop the what and say, if, if I don't have blank, then, well, you can answer that question, right? Well, if I don't have, I don't know, two cars, then I will have one car and I will reduce my expenses, reduce my insurance. We can get an Uber anytime we need another vehicle, whatever it might be like, you know, ask that question, drop the what, you just use the if and finish that sentence. And you can maybe start figuring out how you can use subtraction to really adopt the, the mindset of less is more. Lighty, I want to talk about failure and subtraction. Like, you know, are there any examples that you can think of or that you've come across in your research or maybe in your personal life where you've seen failure happen 
And instead of adding, we always want to add stuff to solve problems. Any cases that where subtraction has actually been the solution because we're talking about success through failure here. And how do we find success? Have there been examples of success you've seen that have been from subtraction? Yeah. You know, this is something we could study, but my guess would be too that when you're failing at something, I imagine the adding instinct would become even stronger. You know, one of the things that we found in our research is if you're distracted or you're cognitively loaded or you go more to these default settings in your brain, which have us add. And, you know, when you're failing, I, and that's a stressful situation, right? I would hypothesize that everything we've talked about, about subtracting being harder is magnified here. Also with the competence, right? You're failing at least you want to show somebody you're putting in effort, right? You're sitting here, you want to, okay, maybe I'm not going to accomplish this thing that I tried to accomplish, but at least somebody will see that I'm like checking these boxes, even though I don't accomplish the thing. So that desire to display confidence might even be stronger too. One example I have actually from my sports career. And so it was my senior season of soccer and, um, we were just an underperforming team in the soccer season in college is relatively short two months long. And so if you get off on a bad way, things can spiral pretty quickly. We had won the league the year before, made the NCAA tournament, which was kind of like the peak for what our team could achieve, basically, and had everybody coming back, except for, you know, some, we, most of our all-league players coming back. Definitely picked to win the league and even had higher aspirations. And so, we're just struggling through this season, middling around at about 500. We just scraped into our league tournament, which that was how we would get into the NCAA tournament was to, to win the league tournament. And that was like our World Cup, like winning the league tournament. That was the thing. So we just barely make it in. And we've got this week of practice leading up to the league tournament. And our coaches had tried everything all year to like shake us out of our funk, right? So they tried like replacing complacent seniors with upstart freshmen. They had tried, you know, new tactical things. They had tried yelling at us, right? They had tried being the good, good guy. <laughs> yeah. So they just tried everything. But that last week, what we did, and I'll never forget it, was we practiced with the starters playing against the non-starters. Uh, and this is something that we would always do. But instead of playing full with the starters, we took off two of the starters in practice. So basically soccer's 11 on 11. We were playing nine starters against 11 non-starters. And what that forced us to do <laughs> was just shook us out of our funk. And so now you've got nine people, we have to cover more ground, you know, yeah, if I was in a game with 11 people, when I'm playing defense, I would like cover a certain amount of space. Now that I'm with nine people, I have to cover more space and just think about it a little differently. And again, I don't think this works in every situation. If you're a soccer coach out there, you're not going to go take two players off. But it was something that we hadn't tried before. It shook us out of our funk and it was a subtraction. And so then when we went to the, we ended up winning the league tournament or else I wouldn't be telling this story. But when we went, we of course put the two players back on the field, but the whole dynamic of our team was different because we had practiced with these shorter numbers and we were just covering different spaces. And, and so that was an example of, you know, a failing system, the coaches added, 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 finally thought of subtracting and brilliantly thought of subtracting. And then, you know, it, it was the difference in the performance of our team. One of the reasons I like that example is when we talk about subtracting in systems, there's this cliche in sports, right? The whole is greater than the sum of its parts, right? Uh, and that 
cliche originates from this guy, Kurt Kafka, who's a psychologist. And his original quote is the whole is something else than the sum of its parts. And he would get really mad at people who would just conflate it with adding, because when you say the whole is more than the sum of its parts, you're suggesting that this can only go up. And his point was that when you're dealing with these systems, the whole might be more than the sum of its parts, or the whole can be less than the sum of its parts. It's something else than the sum of its parts. And I think that's what you saw with the soccer example is that you've got this system in 11 players playing how we were playing that is not at an optimal level. And one of the ways to shake that up is to add stuff. Another way is to take things away. And this actually ties back into the Embarcadero example. So traffic doesn't actually worsen in some of these freeway removal examples for the same reason that like taking players out of our soccer system didn't make us worse. And the reason is because traffic and, you know, a soccer team is not operating at this like optimal equilibrium. You're operating at some suboptimal equilibrium. And so when you change things, people adjust and then settle into some other suboptimal equilibrium, which can be above or can be below where you were before. So uh, anyway, that's a a little bit of science, a little bit of a, a sports story, but an example of subtracting as a response to failure that actually helped turn the failure into success. Lighty, for the listener who's saying, okay, I get it. This is a concept that I want to embrace. Is there an action item that you can recommend that they take in the next 24 to 48 hours? And maybe you already shared, maybe it's creating the, the stop doing list, but anything that you can recommend that somebody, somebody can do to really make this stick because once they stop listening to this podcast and they go back into their lives and open their email inbox or go home and get busy again, like what can they do to make this work? What's an action item they can do the next day or two? Well, the the book only takes seven hours to listen to on Audible. So you can do that. And (laughs) I've written the book, hopefully to kind of rearrange, help people rearrange their mental furniture to think about this. But even if you read the book, and even if you don't read the book, I think the thing that you can do right after listening to the podcast is where can you put in place these reminders to yourself to consider the option? Because like you said, Jim, you're going to go out there, you're going to get busy. So Similar to the stop doing, the stop doing is this reminder that happens when you're making your calendar that, hey, subtracting is an option here. So can you think about a a similar reminder for when you're going grocery shopping or a similar reminder for when you're thinking about your kid's toy closet or a similar reminder for the, the important decisions that you make in your life? And, you know, if you're involved in a however you're trying to make your community better, right? A simple reminder to consider subtraction next time you have a brainstorming session with your, you know, local sports organization or with the city planning group that you're a part of. And so again, I'm not saying think of subtraction. That's what we're trying to do here. I'm saying put in place a reminder for yourself now so that it becomes impossible when the time comes to overlook subtraction because left to our own devices, that's what we're going to do. 100%. A reminder, a trigger, something to get you to think about this, to, to break out of that default thinking. Excellent advice. Lighty, where can people find you, follow you, buy your book, et cetera? The book you can buy anywhere and there's a audible version and I have a great Google name. My parents blessed me with that. So L-E-I-D-Y-K-L-O-T-Z you can find out what I'm up to. I have my website is lightyclots.com and I'm on Twitter, but the book is really, you know, if you're interested in subtraction, that's where all my collected best 
thoughts are. It's not like I'm tweeting out amazing nuggets. I'm relying on people like you, Jim, to kind of translate this to practical wisdom for the users. Absolutely. There's a lot of practical wisdom in the book. I recommend it for the listeners. I'll have the links for Lighty's social media, his website, where you can buy the book, et cetera. In the action plan, as always, jimharshawjr.com slash action. Lighty, thank you so much for making time to come on the show. Thanks, Jim. I'm looking forward to seeing the action plan. I'm going to use it for myself and, and I'll be sharing it widely. So thanks for having me. It was fun to fun to meet you. Yeah, it'll be a great action plan. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you want to apply these principles into your life, let's talk. You can see the limited spaces that are open on my calendar at jimharshawjr.com slash apply, where you can sign up for a free one-time coaching call directly with me. And don't forget to grab your action plan. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. And lastly, iTunes tends to suggest podcasts with more ratings and reviews more often. You would totally make my day if you give me a rating and review. Those go a long way in helping me grow the podcast audience. Just open up your podcast app. If you have an iPhone, do a search for success through failure, select it, and then scroll the whole way to the bottom where you can leave the podcast a rating and a review. Now, I hope this isn't just another podcast episode for you. I hope you take action on what you learned here today. Good luck and thanks for listening.